Professor Malcolm Atkinson, it's brilliant to talk to you today on a cold and frosty December day in Edinburgh. Um, we go back a long time one way or another and I'd be really keen to ask you some questions about your experiences, your reflections. But first of all, um, for our listener, um, who knows, there may be more than one listener, just tell me about um, your journey in your career. I know you're an emeritus professor of e-science here at the University of Edinburgh, probably in the days when um, laptops were just a twinkle in somebody's eye. Um, that what? How did you get started on that? What led you to taking well, up that post? I was uh, involved in uh, computing because... I started trying to uh, be a particle physicist oh, yeah. and uh, as part of the practicals in Cambridge I had to look at a very large number of, uh, of photographs of bubble chambers and measure curvatures and identify the particles and look for a particular kind of decay that I was supposed to be looking for and uh, myself and lots of other students were essentially the slave labour for someone who was doing that research. And I thought, uh, because I happened to have read uh, about computers in the Scientific American September issue, which was specially on it, that uh, computers might be good at doing this. So I decided to go off to be a computer scientist. No, I didn't. I thought I would go and learn about computing and then come back and do uh, the physics. And uh, I signed up for the diploma course in mathematics numerical analysis and computing in cambridge mm -hmm. and uh sir neville mott who was the uh, uh cavendish prophet asked me to come and see him and i came to see him and he said what's this i hear about you doing uh, computing and i said oh, i'm going to do it because i've really struggled with the uh, bubble chamber photographs and I'm sure I could get computers to do them better and I also think computers might be able to help us find the papers we need to read. Mm -hmm. Oh, he said, go away. You'll be totally, you'll know all there is to know about computing after a week and in two weeks you'll be totally bored. Well, I'm delighted to say <laughs> that computing has expanded much faster than I have, but for the whole of the time I've been interested in computing, I've been interested in the issue of how can we do things with computing that uh, are a challenge uh, to keep on doing them repeatedly, uh, to deal with the quantities and so on. And I've always been particularly interested in data, although my initial work was uh, uh, on uh, recognising hand-drawn characters. Oh, it's interesting. And you obviously... Uh took an interest in an area that has now really exploded in terms of its relevance, the size, the scale of what we can well, or should be doing with data. Um, well, I, one of the things that's uh, totally amazing is, uh, you know, the way things have changed. And it's not due to computer scientists alone. Uh, the software uh, and the systems designed by computer scientists are fantastic, but they would be completely useless if it wasn't for what the electrical engineers, the digital uh, designers, the solid-state physicists and so on have done to greatly reduce and uh, and make more powerful 
the computers uh, I uh, um, have here uh, a, a quarter of a terabyte of store you know that was an unimaginable amount for the entire UK computing service for the research run by EPCC in in, in 1997 mm. right this is this is huge compared with that that thing in 1997 took so much power that it needed special electrical supplies this runs all day on its battery and at the end of the day it tells me it's still got 80 percent of yeah, the battery that's amazing I, and mm. the power of this the computing power of this is much higher this can now recognize things like speech whereas that computer that was run for the national service in 1997 mm. couldn't do that it's, it's mind-boggling in a way. And, yeah, yeah, the and way it's changed since I started in 1966, and the way it's changed yeah. is amazing. Yeah, and so fast forward to um, your own personal experience because you developed age-related macular degeneration, um, and that was a few years ago. How's that um, influenced your thinking, not just in terms of the power of data, how can computing be applied to having a better patient experience, but from your own perspective? Well, one of the things that uh, I've always understood, and uh, I've worked with in a medical context since the days of Mrs. Thatcher, um, is that uh, essentially collecting data about what is going on uh, is critical to understanding what is going on. Uh, simply uh, the people like you are incredibly skilled at recognising things but you can't look at everybody <laughs> and therefore you can't for example detect early symptoms of something you, you can only deal with things that turn up uh, in your professional context um, whereas if you want to for example detect an earlier uh, precursor of something uh, you have to look at much larger populations and uh, the labour involved uh, is really challenging if you want to look at it in great detail. One of the fantastic things is how lucky I am. I was incredibly lucky in that uh, I developed my AMD in uh, 2009, which is almost the perfect time for detect developing it um, because by then... There were some treatments for the one that I happened to get, which is wet AMD, thank goodness. And um, it uh, was also really fortunate that uh, the opt optometrist who was opt opt not optometrist. optometrist who was looking at my eye yeah. uh, for a routine eye examination responded when I said, "Why, when I've covered covered up that eye?" Have the characters gone, the straight lines on the characters gone a bit curly? Mm. And uh, Lindsay Brown immediately uh, decided that uh, I should go and uh, see the ophthalmologists uh, and Val's uh, team. And it was quite interesting um, because she had good communications because she was, I think, working with them already so she's more as simply telephoned mm. and um it was it was great um 
and I got an appointment very quickly. And um, so here was the first thing. I happened to have an alert optometrist who uh, detected this very early. I then very luckily was within five minutes walk when I was in my office of a place which was really expert at looking after people with wet AMT. And uh, the techniques had been developed at that time. They were quite complicated in those days compared with what's happening today. And I'm going to talk about that in a moment, if, if I may. Yeah. But one of the, the things that uh, was really interesting um, was that uh, I, went, I went along and uh, they, they took some images, but I was about to do uh, a 600-mile walk around the coast of the Southwest Coastal Path, and I'd booked all my accommodation. And they said, oh, being away six weeks, that's okay, come back and see us. And we had, I had an appointment for the day after I got back. Mm-hmm. Uh, but So the team immediately were, were helpful on fitting in, and that's so that uh, with, with my commitments. What I know now is that uh, the longer you leave, the AMD before you start treating it, uh, the worse it gets, and it's relatively difficult to improve it once it's got worse. Mm-hmm. So the sooner you can detect it, and the sooner I should, I think if I thought again now, I would have rearranged my walk, I think, <laughs> and gained that six weeks, but I didn't. Since then, um, the acuity in his eye has remained almost constant uh, I, I don't know how much it would have deteriorated with age, and it's now 13 years. Um, but, uh, you know, the, 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 this eye has deteriorated a little bit. Uh, this eye has kept working really well uh, until uh, November this year. Yeah. And November this year, I started developing a cataract very rapidly. Mm-hmm. And so I'm very pleased to say that, uh, that I'm also having an appointment uh, to look at that cataract. And uh, Anna Maria um, Amrecht, who looks after me very well, and has done, I think, almost all the time, uh, as the clinician in charge of my case, uh, has really moved very quickly, because she said that that cataract came on very suddenly, and she said it could be partly due to having had, I think, about 100 injections in his eye now. but, uh, you know, up until November, this eye was working as well as it was when I took it in uh, 13 years ago. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that's quite remarkable is that the procedures have managed to improve and accelerate faster and faster. Mm-hmm. So I go there now mm-hmm. and I'm in a queue of quite a lot of people, whereas I used to be in a queue of about four people. And uh, we go through in about eight minutes. And it's been simplified so enormously. It used to be lots of uh, more preparation, lot of putting things over your eye afterwards and uh, drops to put in your eye. And each bit has been steadily taken away until it's really a simple procedure. And the other thing that is really... Um, Impressive is that this procedure is almost always uh, done by a very expert nurses, mm-hmm. and they 
uh, do this very competently. They tell me it takes a long while before you feel confident to put a needle into someone else's eye. So they, I think, uh, work there with other people in training for quite a long while. And they, uh, but they get you in and out very quickly. Nevertheless, because of the workload, uh, they are looking. There, that those clinics uh, have, have expanded in number and mm. work uh, really quite long hours. Um, I'm hoping that uh, the that that uh, um, you know they they start, certainly started at half past eight, and uh, they they I've even had injections on on a Saturday morning. Uh, so uh, they uh, this is showing the clinical load that is going up on the uh, people who are doing this work um, because it's so successful. If, you see, before this kind of treatment, I would have been back there perhaps for a few times and then uh, the, the eye would have stopped work, working well enough yeah. to be treated. It, it and have, now you're yeah. keeping me going, and you're keeping me going, and, and you've kept me going so long that I now need a cataract <laughs> working as well. So it, it's a brilliant success story. And another element of that success story is that the quality of the images, uh, the essentially uh, three-dimensional images of the eye, has become really impressive and going and getting your uh, eye imaged is now uh, so quick. It used to be a real challenge to get the, a good enough quality image. The, the technical people who run that mm. part of the work used to get you to be very careful about blinking and that so on. These days, the, the technology built into the uh, OCT cameras uh, is do, dealing with things like blinks and eye movements really quite successfully. I think basically using the same image matching technology mm. as, as was developed by the astronomers to deal with the shimmer when they're trying to get That's images right. yeah. of, 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 of uh, uh, astrophysical objects. So uh, that is a really good story, yeah. and, but it's meant that you've got an increasing workload and uh, I'm really hoping to see things that will help you with that workload um, being developed. Yeah, the, the answer to the workload, is, and you've lived through this through almost a hundred um, injections, is to try and identify a way of preventing the progression without the need for well, repeated injections. I mean, I just want to come back to. Um, if you take yourself back to when you first got the diagnosis and then you um, obviously it's great to hear that you had such a, a good service but how did you feel did you feel this was uh, old father time setting in did, uh, I was doing a despondency I, I, I was panic stricken because the, all the people I knew that had AMD had gone blind yeah uh, in fact uh, my wife's mother had, uh, had, had gone blind with AMD. So I was very well aware that, the, that this was... Uh, and uh, the, uh, I knew uh, that kind of historically uh, it was uh, a particularly difficult thing to deal with. Mm. And so I was really quite surprised. And uh, I went to uh, talk to Dave Robertson, who was head of school at the time, um, in something of a panic. And he said, no, no, don't worry. 
He says, I, I, I've got good friends who, who, who've also got AMD and they're, they're still seeing perfectly well. Uh, mm -hmm. The treatment's changed. And then I, uh, uh, I also looked up a, a couple of papers to see what was going on as well, yeah. uh, because that's what I always do. <laughs> <laughs> you do a quick uh, search. But, but, um, mm -hmm. and, and found that uh, basically uh, what was uh, causing it had been understood uh, by uh, uh, um, uh, the bio uh, biochemists um, in uh, yeah, I think a, a Manchester group was the paper I saw, uh, and um, so there was a reasonably good understanding of it, but but and there was also an understanding of how to address it. But it, it's essentially uh, palliative care in the sense that it's preventing preventing progression. Yeah, uh, it's not really curing it. Um, one of the things that I was curious about, and this this I raised with Anna Maria, is I said, you know, that you've told me that quite a lot of the patients come in here and have a number of uh, of injections, and then their eye dries up mm -hmm. and doesn't uh, uh, cause a problem any more longer. And uh, my um, mind is clearly keeping you guys busy indefinitely. So. It, you know, it, I'm, I think it would be interesting to understand why that's different. Mm -hmm. And uh, I said, so basically, you've got all this, uh, all these eye images, and uh, we've now got uh, a good sequencing of DNA. It ought to be possible to uh, understand the difference between different patients, and uh, and uh, by analysing the data for, available from them. Uh, in order to understand which patients will respond to which treatment. And she said, oh, you should talk to uh, her, Bao, well, Professor Dillon, she said, but uh, <laughs> yeah, we, we'll call him Bao now. And um, because he's running this uh, project, I can't remember what it's called, she said, but he's collecting all the images to do just that. So uh, I... Uh, uh, contacted you, and um, yeah. and she she uh, she contacted you as well, and uh, since then we've been working together. We have indeed, and uh, you touched on uh, the fact that the images and potentially uh, the DNA might be predictive. Um, it might give us an indication and a, a way and a method of stratification for people who are at risk and. You were just remind me how old were you when you got the diagnosis of what happened? Well, I got the diagnosis in um, two thousand and nine, and I was born in nineteen forty-three. So let seven, me do the math. Yes, sixty-six. <laughs> so a youngster, a spring chicken. Um, <laughs> well, I'm I'm still going strong, and I'm seventy-nine now. Uh, That's right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Still, still a spring chicken. Uh, so aged uh, sixty-six. If you then. As a thought experiment, you uh, imagine that aged 40, you had a personal profile, whether it's based on imaging, early changes, um, mm. your DNA profile, the polygenic risk. Um, and they'd said to the 40-year-old Malcolm, uh, this is the risk of developing AMD. Do you think that would have been helpful or unhelpful, providing they gave you well, something that I, you may, I, I, maybe I, I, could do about it? Well, I think, I think I think there's two things. I mean, if you can identify a risk early like that, then um, people can. Well, I could 
certainly uh, managed to choose things that I do that are not going to be quite so dependent on uh, my eyesight is, is other things. So uh, I, I could, you know, if, if there was a risk of, 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 of reduced... Uh, but that would have stopped you doing the great work that you were doing. It wouldn't have stopped me, but it might mean that, for example, uh, I would, uh, would not be uh, taking as a hobby uh, a lot of bird watching because, uh, you know, you really do need visual acuity with the bird watching, which I... <laughs> Uh, do go bird watching, and it's a real challenge now to uh, mm. identify birds. But uh, they're, they're, but you learn to identify them by other things than their colour and 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 and, 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 and details, and you, and you get a much better scope. Mm -hmm. But uh, what um, I think uh, would be critical, and uh, is you know the fact that it's pretty. It, one can see that there's a higher risk. Are there things that you can do to modify your own lifestyle uh, to reduce that risk? Um, short of reducing drinking malt whiskey uh, once once a week or so, mm -hmm. uh, because I don't think you can get below that. Uh, <laughs> I, 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 uh, I think that I would have been happy to modify lifestyle if you could have told me lifestyle things. Or but exercise, the second, maybe, or but, dietary change. Otherwise. But that's what I mean. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm, not, no, I'm, not, I'm, just, I'm just taking a particular oh, example. No, but more whiskey, I think, is probably therapeutic. Sort of <laughs> well, dosage. it depends how good it is. <laughs> uh, the, um, uh, the, um, but the particular uh, thing, I think, is that um, generally... If predictors are understood reasonably well, then there's a much better chance that treatments will develop. Mm. And so uh, if when I was 40, someone could tell me that, uh, uh, that you've got this X probability of, uh, of, of uh, what, AMD, yeah. uh, <coughs> uh, then, you know, whether there would be something immediately uh, of available, mm -hmm. um, like uh, the um, uh, providing uh, the N antimorph of the protein that actually tends to make th this happen yeah. into the uh, eye or into the bloodstream, mm -hmm. uh, or um, some other treatment, you know, one would hope that something like that would develop even uh, quite quickly mm -hmm. um, when the identification is possible. Okay. So I think I think there's I think there's several uh, things there. But one of them is clearly um, if you look at the optometry visits at the moment, their general purpose and looking for all sorts of. Of, of, of things like glaucoma and uh, uh, cataracts and so on. And um, if you had a risk predictor which could alert your optometrist uh, to be looking for uh, the onset of, of something like that, mm -hmm. then earlier detection would be possible. And um, as we've seen from... Uh, um, papers from example the group at UCL if you get earlier detection you get uh, 
prevention of progress um, uh, from that. Uh, so the eye remains in better shape than if you get later detection. Yeah, yes, I'm, I'm with you on that. It, it, it's uh, interesting, the first of these um, podcasts uh, on vision and visions, um, I held with uh, two of my colleagues. They were trainees um, with me, which makes me feel very old. Um, and we were talking about um, behavioural modifications. Uh, and there was generally a nihilistic um, view of uh, experience in getting people to change um, at an age when maybe they don't want to change, whether it's stopping smoking or whether it's a dietary change or whether it's anything else in their lifestyle. It seemed a little bit negative. But you think... Well, I think, think, A, uh, one cares about one's sight so much that, uh, you know, if you thought there was, it was threatened and there was something you could do, then the... and, And, B... If you could do it at 40, I think it's much easier to get someone to change at 40 than it is at 60. Yeah. Um, I think you, you, you're you more stuck in a groove uh, later. Um, I don't know. When do you think that here. sweet spot is? When when does a groove get set in? Do you think it's around Well, I would, I, I would have said around, I think late 40s, early 50s. Okay. People, I think people uh, tend to get less uh, confident about uh, uh, coping with different ways of living. Yeah, um, but, they, but there's that, always potential for change. I mean, it's yeah. It's I mean, every, anybody will change, but I don't think I, uh, the trouble is, I think, uh, well, our energy goes down, our metabolism rates go down, and so on. So I think the effects of of changing are not uh, as yeah. uh, sufficient as uh, uh, as they should be. But I think that's an interesting point because we're we're basing it on our personal histories and experience. But these days, um, the youngsters, I call the youngsters anyone younger than 60, um, they have Fitbits, they monitor data. Oh, yeah. And they share it with each other. They're they're very conscious of their health. uh, And, and, you know, so many of the the people I work with in that category Mm. go to the gym Whereas I never went to the gym in those days. I go to the gym now because I now realise that if I don't go to the gym, I get a stiff back. And I yeah. went to Pilates this morning, right? Because uh, but, when did you but, start going to the gym? At what age? Well, I I remember I used to be quite keen on it when I was at, at, at school and going to university. And now yeah. they go running, and, and I've always gone hill walking. Um, but then there's a lot but, in the but, gym. But but it that but going to the gym. I certainly started uh, roughly uh, uh, when I was uh, 69, 70, around okay. about that. Good for you. So th- th- there's always uh, the prospect of uh, making a dent. <laughs>